Well, praise the Lord. Um, Brother Dale talked about the, the first time he preached a message, um, and then also the first time he preached in Spanish. And um, For whatever reasons, I found this assignment to be very difficult, um, to be able to put my heart and use these tools to communicate it. And So have grace with me and pray for me. I, I feel my weakness very keenly, but that's good, I'm sure. Um, maybe just as a, a means of introduction, I, I have found for the last, I didn't figure out exactly, but somewhere around 10 years, myself intrigued to study revival and, and the move of God in history. I would rather study what God's doing than what man's doing. And um, and uh, so it's been a passion in my life. I consider it a, an honor and a joy to be able to just share together today. I would like um, just quickly... Um, a raise of hands, and don't, it doesn't matter whether you do or don't raise your hand, but um, how many of you have put time into, let's say, studying at least a book or multiple books about the history of revival, that that's captured your interest and you invested time there? Just so I have a little sense of the, the audience I'm um, speaking to. Okay, that's a good number of hands. Well, um, as you, those of you know that have, have uh, done that, uh, there's, it's not possible in a short amount of time to report even in a general way on all that God's done, and certainly not to do the subject justice. Um, I told the brother that asked me to share this way, and as I prayed about it, I said, brother, I, I do not feel clear to just give facts and data, and that's what uh, brother Ken shared, but that, um, and even Maybe the timeline will try to give a little sense of that. But I would like to highlight a number of different um, moves of God's Spirit that um, have been representative, in, as I've studied revival, the characteristics that we can learn from um, as, we, as we study this. Um, Chester Weaver, a historian, once said that uh, the only thing that we learn from revival is, or from history is that we don't do very well at learning from history. And uh, I, I consider that to be a, a, good, um, a good statement. Um, give me a moment to get my notes here. Um, I was once, give me just a little grace to figure out how this thing runs, <laughs> I think we got it. I was once um, amazed sometimes uh, how many times people from uh, seemingly Bible-believing and, and conservative circles, how little they know about the moves of God in the past and revival. Uh, one time I was talking with a young Mennonite uh, boy um, about something about revival, and he's, and, uh uh, he stated something about the revival movement. Um, and being somewhat a student of revival, I was curious to which revival movement he was referring to. And to my utter surprise, he replied, oh, you mean there was more than one? <laughs> and uh, so... Um,
I've created a little list of different major revivals. These do not include um, uh, localized. These are more major ones through the years. As you can see, there's um, uh, you know quite a list. Um, when we are not aware of God's movings, it is doubtful that we will press in in earnest revival, uh, earnest prayer to see revival in our day. J. Edwin Orr, who's a kind of a somebody who's done a lot of study on revival, said, "When God wants to send revival, He sets His people to praying." And uh, uh, Oswald Chambers has uh, said that prayer is not preparation for the work; prayer is the work. And uh, as I communicated with some of these brothers about what to share, uh, one of the things that they said is maybe to share a little bit about the background and conditions of revival. And really, there is none. Um, they happen in times of prosperity. They happen in times of a national disaster and economic adversity. And yes, it's true that uh, many times when we're more sensitive, our need to God, things happen that, that we tend to pray more. But they've happened in all times. They've happened in so many different nationalistic backgrounds and, and so forth. There's only one common denominator that you can absolutely trace to all revival, and that is prayer. And that's not just little prayer, but much prayer and agreed prayer and, and work gathering together God's people and praying. There's always hidden springs um, uh, to revival. I, I'm also aware that um, uh, in... In our circles, when we have some maybe tent meetings or some sort of evangelistic campaign, we call them revival meetings, whatever, um, that uh, maybe a few souls get saved or, or um, you know, God does a, a fresh work and, and we say, we're having revival. My heart in this presentation is to lift that standard and to not let us be satisfied with just a little bit of God moving. And so we just settle down and that's all we pray for. Um, the late evangelist George R. Bronk II, who God used um, throughout the 50s and 60s and 70s and even later, but um, I, I heard him preaching one day uh, in Orville, Ohio, on, on a tape. Naturally, I was not even born then. Um, and he said, I think it was like Saturday evening, just before the they had like a two- or three-week campaign they were bringing to a close. He said, you think, because 20 or 30 people are walking the aisle each night and people are getting saved that we're having revival. He said, we are not having revival here. God has not yet broken through. And as I listened to that, I said, how could he say that? How could he speak that so authoritatively like that? But then as I studied the Lancaster Revival in 1951, where he had just been there a number of weeks or months previous to those meetings, I understood why he said that, because he had seen and tasted the real thing. He knew what it was like when God came down in answer to the prayers of his people and poured out his spirit in a in a marvelous way. Um, uh, Evan Roberts, uh, a man whom God used in the Welsh Revival in 1904, um, was often quoted as saying, you're asking God to send his spirit. He said, I have record that he came. Have you any record that he left? <laughs> and, and, while, and yet he would also ask his people to pray for the spirit to come. Isn't that interesting? Um, and and as, I, as we think about this, the spirit is here, as we've heard this morning. God has poured out his spirit upon all flesh. But there are times when God in his sovereignty chooses to manifest himself in a mighty way. And that is what we are uh, hoping to see today, to, to look at some of those things. We need to, when, we need to see the lukewarm um, state of the church today and where things are at and people just content to be at ease in Zion. And that is what should set us to praying. And uh, 
I, our desire is that we would seek God until He comes and reach, rains righteousness upon us. Not seeking Him to do what we will not do, but seeking Him to do what we cannot do. When we have done what we will and we've made ourselves available, asking Him to come and rend the heavens and to, to, um, to come and rain righteousness on us. I'm also hoping in this short time to look at what God's done in days gone by and give us a holy dissatisfaction. Uh, and as we recount things He's done to stir us up for what the possibilities are that He could do. I want to uh, look at history and a number of revivals. I'd like to just say it's been stated many times this weekend that honesty is so important. It's easy for us to say, well, that was them or that was for what God did here or that people group or whatever. But let's just be honest. When we're not there, say we're not there. When we study history, the best thing we can do is read what God's done and just be honest. God loves an honest heart. It's, it, sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes there's thing we can't, things we can't explain. Sometimes there's things we aren't comfortable with. And that's okay. Let's just be honest. Lord, I, it looks like you've done this. I have no other explanation for it. I'm not comfortable. If you want to make me comfortable, you're going to have to change me. Here's where I'm at. And that's okay. God wants honest hearts. Um, again, as I shared earlier, um, there's no possible way we can even begin to even provide an overview of all that God's done down through the ages. Naturally, you'll see that um, in, these, in, this, uh, there we go. in this presentation, at first the dates are far apart and, and not near as often. Then as it comes later, much closer together. And much more often, and and uh, part of that I believe is 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 communication and 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 records, and some of it too is as the Bible got printed and as the people became awakened, as the, just like we're hoping today, they began to pray, and as they heard of revival in other places, and as they read history, what God did there and did here, they said, "Let's seek God for that for us," and He came and He visited them. Um, of course, the first. Um, record of revival is the church. Revival is not some super spiritual thing. Yes, there's mighty outpourings of God's Spirit, but revival is only a return to normal Christianity. And, and, and so let's not think we're looking for some major lofty high experience. We just want to walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit for what He has for us today. Um, we know that, uh, it, of course, the church started here and it spread. It spread all the way up through here and we have much of those records in the New Testament spread all over into Asia and up into Europe. Uh, as, and, and it's amazing how God had key figures, and this has often been this way in revival, key figures, men like Paul and some of the other apostles that he used to, mightily, but he also used everybody. They went everywhere preaching. And, and this is also very common to revival, those two things. One of, moving on from the early church, one of the um, earliest revivals that we have good records on is the Waldensians. And I have here a picture, um, uh, a sketch actually, of a day when the bitter opposition, often this does happen in revival, bitter opposition breaks out against what God's doing. And, and we'll talk more about that. But in this picture, 240 Waldensians were burned in one day. Can you imagine, outside of town, a picture like this, 240 of them being burned. I, I can't even fathom that. I can't fathom the impact, something like that would be on a local area. But that, that is what happened. But they, it did not stop them. They went everywhere preaching and they spread. And, and God was with them and, and, and the Holy Spirit went with them. 
here's a, a, a rough picture of um, representing uh, January 21, 1525, which is uh, often called the, the birthday of the Anabaptist movement. Um, I want to just scroll down here a little if I can figure out how to do it. And um, on that date, uh, a number of brothers got together and uh, decided that they are going to decide to follow God in the face of, of uh, very strong opposition and um, being told that they must baptize their infants. Let's see if we can go back here. Well, guess. There we go. There we go. And um, and God came down and honored their sacrifice. Within two years, all those men were dead. But the Holy Spirit, don't think it was just people uh, doing things in the flesh and, and uh, somehow people caught it and it went on. The Holy Spirit came down and in a mighty wind blew out at that time and revived those people. And it, they, the church spread by the thousands. They just couldn't stamp it out. And these people were people of spiritual authority. Things like we might not know much of today. You read the Mars Mirror, you read instances where uh, men cited somebody to appear before the judgment seat of God in three days. Can you imagine that? And he did. Another place, there's a group of, uh, of Anabaptists being led across a bridge to their execution. And one of them prophesied and said, this bridge is not going to be used to carry people across anymore. And within a very short period of time, a storm came and took the bridge out. This was not just people walking good principles and, and keeping rules. Amen. This was people full of living God. They didn't even know who they were. They, they didn't even use the name Anabaptists. They just called themselves brethren, Swiss brothers. And later on, those names came from their uh, enemies and they kind of assumed them. But they were just brothers trying to follow Jesus, Amen. pouring out their life. And they gave, they've given us things that we can follow. Uh, moving on. Um, in the 1700s, again, we're just hitting some highlights. Um, God used two brothers, John uh, and Charles Wesley, and their, their friend, George Whitfield, uh, mightily in England. Um, they, especially the Wesleys, got together regularly for Bible study, prayer, and accountability. Things like we're doing on this weekend, gathering in circles, praying together. They would do that regular. And did you know the Methodists, as they, uh, the, their groups became to be called, were despised people? Today we see the big lofty churches and all the big fancy buildings and all those things. To become a Methodist in the early days was to be despised. They're one of those lowly Methodists, one of those crazy people. So-and-so has gone to join the Methodists. <laughs> that, was, that was the tenor of the day. But it didn't matter. These people didn't care. They wanted reality. They wanted God. And these people, um, these, these men sold out to God, got born of the Spirit, and they regularly preached. In those days, without electronics, the crowds of thousands, sometimes... 10,000. And, and these, of course, are just sketches, but here it shows uh, George Whitfield preaching to some of the Americans and, and John, and, and here's a, sometimes as many as 10,000. It's reliably reported in some cases. Um, after John was done preaching, there was over 1,500 men lying prostrate on the ground, uh, totally overcome of conviction for their sin. And when they came to, they walked in holiness of life. They, they, they turned the tide against things like gambling and drunkenness. In, in the places they went to preach. In fact, um, there's a, a brothers wrote in a book, I, I highly recommend it, 
how the Methodists saved America. And he talks about how these people, these circuit riders who just um, lived for the gospel, they went everywhere. The average lifespan of these men was 33 years old. But they, they didn't care. They were full of God and they were going to burn out their life for Jesus. And, and they went everywhere preaching. And a, a new town would open up on the frontier. And, and before it was opened up, there was a circuit riding preacher preaching to those depraved souls who were looking for reality. And they were trying to find the things of this world. And they knew that where those pioneers were, there were souls that needed Jesus. And they would be there at the end of the road, tracking them down, preaching the gospel. Sometimes they would ride miles and miles, going from community to community, preaching the gospel. And people came under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. There was a time when the Methodist movement was most near the Amish movement because they were such a conservative people. Not because they had a list of rules, but because they took the commands of Jesus literally. And I'm not lifting up people groups, but I'm just giving an example of what happens. Now we see these things later, things have cooled off, but somehow in our minds sometimes we look at groups like them and we say, well, that's not us. You know, that we, we're here. But do we think that we can afford to cool off? Look what happens when people follow the things of this world and, and get lukewarm. Um, next, I, I want to talk a little about Charles Finney. Charles Finney was a lawyer in New York. And... Um, Probably, possibly no, no man, uh, greater used by God in revival than Charles Finney, at least in an obvious way. And also possibly no more of a controversial figure than this man in church history, as people have looked at him. Charles Finney, um, was part of a prayer meeting or Bible study, and they, um, they asked him if he should pray, they should pray for him for his salvation. He said, don't bother, I've been listening to you pray for a revival, and God's not answering your prayers, I don't see as it'll help anything. And, and, uh, but he was incredibly practical. And I believe that's why he was used by God. Because he held God at his word. He took God at his word. And he did get born again. And he did get filled with the Holy Spirit shortly thereafter. And he was mightily used as a preacher. And he would go from town to town preaching the gospel. And sometimes hundreds of people would cry out for mercy as they realized their sinfulness. It was in a day when, um, there was a, the mindset of the people was that, um, I'm, I'm just either, you know, whatever's going to happen, it was fatalistic, whatever's going to happen has happened. He ch- challenged them before a holy God about their sin. But it wasn't just his words, it was his spirit. And there was, there's reliable instances where he uh, recorded where he actually just looked at people. Somebody talked about that last night, about just a look from God was the most, uh, from a man of God was the most valuable thing that a brother took with him from one of these Kingdom Fellowship weekends. Just a look. And he saw that brokenness and he said, I want to be like that. This, this man was in a, a knitting mill and there were these, these girls that were, were at the uh, uh, mills weaving and they were casual and laughing and joking. And he looked across and the Holy Spirit fell on them in conviction. And, and the one uh, was so surprised she jerked and it broke the thread. The knitting mill seized up. They all fell down and repented of their sins together and got born of the Spirit. Never even talked to them. He also preached to thousands. I think this is in New York. It's in the early days of photography. It's not a good photo. but uh, um, and, and the thing is, they didn't even advertise these meetings. They didn't have campaigns. They just showed up to preach and people started talking. And the Holy Spirit of God was there. And people just started coming. This is another characteristic of revival. is It is not organized. It is not, over here we're going to have revival meetings on such and such a date. It's God shows up. And people hear about it and they tell others and come, come here and people get saved and then other people, they go tell other people, I got saved and, and after a while, the building, wherever they can't find buildings big enough to hold it, 
And that's why sometimes they've just preached under the, in the open air. Following uh, Finney's ministry, um, or out of that, there's a young, mind by the na- young man by the name of Jeremiah Lamphere. And uh, Jeremiah Lamphere was, uh, I believe, converted during one of Finney's meetings somewhere. And uh, he was a, a businessman slash missionary in the city of New York. And he felt impressed by God to start a noontime prayer meeting to pray for revival in New York City. This was in the year uh, somewhere around 1850, uh, maybe 57, 59 in there. And the first time uh, they got together, nobody came. He prayed for half an hour. Nobody came. He had got the word out. And then about half an hour late, six people straggled in and had their prayer meeting. I think they only had an hour prayer meeting. And they all went back. And But the next week it was, I think, 12 and then 24 and 48. And, and it just mushroomed and soon... There were thousands of people praying. All, they couldn't find buildings big enough to hold these prayer meetings. People stopping their work in the middle of New York City to get together at lunch to uh, pray. And, and there came a time when all across America, it was said you could not get off a train at noontime in a city of America and not find a prayer meeting in some, uh, going during the daytime in a town in America. It was hard to find that. There was times when there were ships during that revival in New York City. There were ships 100 miles out at sea would come into the presence of God knew nothing about the revival. Knew nothing about any of this. They didn't have, you know, all the cell phones and all the things we have today. Knew nothing about it. it would come into the presence of God and the sailors, these, these immoral, uh, lewd sailors would kneel down on the deck and they would, they would, uh, cry out to God for mercy because for their sin. And they would send telegraphs back to shore, send minister. <laughs> and, until they, till they came to the shore, they were leading, they were coming to shore and they were leading people to, to a sal- salvation in Christ. And these were not cheap conversions. These were conversions of people coming under the power of the Holy Ghost and living holy lives and being changed. Sure, there was, there, there's always been hype. There's always been so many who come along for the ride. But, but always, when God, one of the hallmarks of revival when God moves is that it changes people for life. They're never the same. Even today, when you talk to people uh, that new people involved in some of the revivals we'll talk about in just a bit, um, they were changed for life. Sometimes it didn't pass on to the next generation, but it did change them. One of the revivals we want to think about is the, the 1904 Welsh revival. Here's a picture of Evan Roberts, who God used a lot in that revival. He was not the only man. God used a lot of men in that revival. But Evan Roberts was a man of prayer. And this is why I want to think about Evan Roberts. He prayed for 13 years for revival for his country, for his little island country of Wales. 13 years. And in the end... Isn't it interesting? God uses, many times uses the people that pray to answer, be part of the answer. And this was Mariah Chapel, and, and Evan was off at, um, uh, I believe, studying to become a preacher, if I remember. Some seminary or something somewhere. And God put a vision on him of, of a, a little prayer meeting with the young people of their church. This was the Mariah Chapel where the, the revival started in that section of the country. And so he went home to his uh, elder or de- uh, leader, whoever, pastor, and shared his vision. He wasn't so sure about it, but he gave him a little slot off the side somewhere. He said, you can, you, can, you can have a little prayer meeting here. And God came down, and history was written. Because God came down and touched those group of young people. There, there was people, it, it was just like today, it was packaged different. There were people going to dances, not going to church. Going to, it shut the football games down in Wales in 1904. Don't think that God couldn't do it again today. We, 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 you know, we look... We don't want it to be part of this world, and, and, and Dale, Brother Dale talked about this so much. 
but the heart of God beats with a passion for these things. It's not great just to uh, go back our nice long lane to our nice little cottage and talk about how bad those people that all they do is talk about football. That's not okay to just talk about it. It's good to not follow after the things of the world, the sports and all those things. But what about seeing God visit those people and shut down the game because there was nobody to come because everybody had gone to the revival meetings? That weren't planned. That just sprung up everywhere. It was notable because these men would... would, Here's a sketch uh, down in the coal mines, which the the area was a a coal mining region. And these men would, would take breaks for prayer and preaching down in the mines at lunch. When God came to visit them, Evan Roberts himself was from a coal mining family and others too. And they had a problem that happened when the revival hit the coal miners. They couldn't get these ponies to cooperate anymore because the ponies only knew how to respond to cursing. They didn't understand what their masters were saying anymore. And eventually they came along and and got it, but it actually shut the coal mines down or slowed them down for a while. From the 1904 Welsh revival, it spread... God had given Evan Roberts a promise of 100,000 souls. Now, I don't know what you or I would do if God spoke to heart and said, you pray and you get real with me and you press in and I will give you 100,000 souls. Probably most of us would be tempted not to believe God. But Evan Roberts didn't. He believed God. In fact, he was foolish enough to tell people that God had given him the word. And it is reliably reported there was at least 100,000 that were judged to be true conversions during the Welsh Revival, plus others that made professions and maybe slipped back. Out of that, thousands of people went all over the world doing missions out of, the, out, of, out of that revival, and revival spread to Africa and India and over into China and down into Korea, all out of that, and even over to the United States, out of what God did there. I want to talk a little bit about Jonathan Goforth. He was a, a man from Canada, and he, like Finney, was a man that believed that any time that God's people met the condition, God was willing to send a revival. It wasn't something that God was holding to a certain time, but if God's people would honor and get on their face and humble themselves, and this is something I'd like us to get a hold of, he would go everywhere preaching that. What are you waiting for? Get on your knees, get real, and God will come and meet you. And they would do that. They would confess their sins, clean out the closets, and begin praying together and agreeing together in prayer, and God would come meet them and, and um, all over... Um, uh, China, Korea, the South Asia, God used uh, that revival to sweep thousands into the kingdoms in the early 1920s. Um, two more I would like to just talk about. Um, the one is not as near widespread revival, but because of the people group I'm talking to, it's of significant impact. It's, it's one of the few revival movements among the Mennonite people in the, in the country of America is, is what happened in actually where I come from, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, in the, in the early 1950s. Um, here's a picture of the East Chestnut Street Mennonite Church where they started a prayer meeting. And they started a prayer meeting, meeting from 6 to 7, um, I believe it was every weekday. And eventually it just started a little Sunday school room, that's all they needed. But as soon it moved to the, the main sanctuary, and, and then that filled up. And, 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 they, and then they asked, in that time of prayer, they asked... Um, uh, Brother George Brunk to come and share, and they started with the tent meetings. It was supposed to run two weeks outside the church, but soon it was too big to hold. They had to move it out of the city to the um, Lancaster Airport grounds, and here you see pictures of it. And it went for seven weeks, and many, many folks, even you know grandparents today, date their conversion to those days. These are people that that were that 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 God God totally changed um, churches. Um, some of you are from the, the Beachy background. The Weavertown Mennonite Church was 
greatly impacted this by this revival. Up to that point, point, they were farming tobacco and lots of questionable things, a bit materially focused. And God came into their church and tobacco got plowed under. This not just their church, but across Lancaster County. Full, it was tobacco season and full stands of tobacco got plowed down. Nobody told them they needed to do that, but God told them. And on the final evening when they decided to close the revival, the estimate of between fifteen and 20,000 people attended those meetings from all over. And again, this was just people praying and God moving and people preaching the gospel. I'd like to talk a little bit about um, the island, uh, revival in the Isle of Lewis. Um, that's just north of the coast of Scotland. Um, the instrument that God used a lot in that uh, revival was uh, Duncan Campbell. And uh, Duncan Campbell makes it very clear. He said, I did not bring revival to Lewis. Revival was there when I got there. And, and, uh, and that, one of the unique things about um, the revival there in um, Lewis is that, um, again, this element of uh, people waking up in the middle of the night. Here's the chapel where it first started. And, and they, were, they didn't even have, sometimes they'd close the meetings. And then God was moving and people would be, there'd be hundreds of people outside the church came out in the middle of the night. The meetings were ready, they were cl- ready to close them down. The Spirit of God was moving in another place. Um, and this is an important one. They, they went to an area, a region that bitterly withstood Duncan Campbell. Um, because they thought he preached sinless perfection. Because what? He preached victory over sin. He said, you can be delivered from the power of sin through grace. Grace will give you the ability to walk a victorious Christian life that is not under the power of sin, that isn't constantly falling. And he said, I never, I never believed and taught sinless perfection. But they thought that. So they, what did they do? Did they just turn away and say, well, the churches are closed in this section of the country, we can do nothing about it? No, they prayed. And they had a, um, a little prayer meeting, and there was a blacksmith, an old, he wasn't no educated person, but he, he was connected person, he knew God. And, and he, and Duncan felt led in his spirit to call on him to pray. And, and they were in this prayer meeting. It was like one or two in the morning. And uh, this, this uh, blacksmith just poured out his heart to God and, and challenged God that he was, his glory was at stake and that he must do something. God came down and, and they thought they had an earthquake. But Duncan Campbell said, I have my own thoughts about what happened. I remember what happened in Acts. And they went out and the whole community was alive and lights were on everywhere and people were getting up and they all came out and hundreds and hundreds of people came to the Lord um, under the, these people woke up with a conviction of sin. They went to bed sinners and woke up in the middle of the night with a conviction of sin. How can you explain that but by the Spirit of God? I'd like to talk in closing a little about the Chinese revival. I don't, personally didn't get a lot of details together, but today in China, the church is spreading at an amazing rate because people are embracing the cross. Yes, they may, they may have their own flat spots. They do. They have their own weaknesses, but one thing they have, they have a love for the Lord Jesus and they're willing to go even unto death. And God is again honoring the sacrifice of the surrendered vessel. I believe that the Lord wants to send revival to His people. And uh, uh, Brother Denny um, has preached a message on uh, Psalm 80. Um, those of you, some of you may have heard that on reviving the righteous root of Anabaptism and uh, talks about God visiting but the Anabaptists, or even just the American church with himself. The church at once showed the glory of the Lord forth. And, and I believe the vision, this uh, little artistic rendition, is that God would inflame households and bring people together 
all across those who have a form of godliness but many times deny the power. Many, many times through history, it was God-fearing people that had grown cold, that God came to. They had a knowledge of the Scriptures, but they didn't know God. And God came to, and God, God used it and changed them. A um, couple lessons I would like to consider in closing, just kind of a summary, is... The first one, Charles Finney, one man full of the Holy Spirit, what God could do with, who wasn't even a believer when he started. None of us are, but the way God got a hold of him, within weeks he was preaching. Jeremiah Lamphere, one man gathering others together for prayer and how God used that. I'd like to think about uh, the Welsh revival and how perseverance in prayer for 13 years without giving up, believing that God would come through. And then... Um, I would like to think about um, the Lancaster Revival and the importance of continuing. No, it was a great thing God did in Lancaster in the 1950s. But the meetings all stopped. Everything stopped and everybody went back to their, th- their work. And I believe there's a lot more that could have happened in Lancaster in 1950. The, the church was already in bad shape at that time and it did not stem the tide drifting out to sea. So let's leave God do everything he wants to do. Pray for everything he wants to do and then leave him do it. And then uh, uh, China today is the opposite of Lancaster. China today, they put no limits on God. They just, in fact, if you go over there and you can only preach 45 minutes, you can't preach in many of their churches. They have five, six hour meetings. That's normal Christianity for them. And they, they just let God do what he wants to do and let us do that. And, and, uh, I'd like to close with reading um, 2 Chronicles 16, verse 9. Before I read that, I also want, had wanted to mention one more thing when I talked about Jonathan Goforth is also, we will never have, we can never expect corporate revival if we're not first, like these men walking in personal revival. That's, that's how these men walked. They knew God for themselves. They walked with Him, and then they expected that God would come down and visit others and do the same for them. Second Chronicles 16, verse 9. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show Himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect, Toward him. I'm going to start stop reading there. You know, you might think, who am I? What can I do? Don't think that way. Evan Roberts was a very young man, a young teenager, when God put on his heart to start praying for revival. When, when the revival actually came, he was in his early 20s. But he had already been praying for 13 years. God used old blind ladies to begin, uh, in, in the revival in the Isle of Lewis, to begin gathering together and praying into the night, sometimes once or twice a week. Old ladies who couldn't do anything, they thought they couldn't do anything, but they knew how to pray. And they pressed in and they prayed till God came. So none of us has an excuse to say, what can I do? One man, uh, the quote's been said, I believe it was John Knox, one man with God is a majority. And, and yet, isn't it amazing how when revival comes, how the one thing he does is answer the prayer of John 17 and making his body, it's no longer about one man. In fact, many times those details even get lost in history. God remembers them. They get lost in history. But it is about God glorifying Himself in the church.